This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Tom Barbash, author of the short story collection, Stay Up With Me. The nonfiction book, On Top of the World, Cantor Fitzgerald, Howard Lutnick, and 9-11, A Story of Loss and Renewal. And two novels, including The Last Good Chance and The Dakota Winters. Barbash teaches novel writing and short fiction and nonfiction at the California College of the Arts. In his latest novel, The Dakota Winters, Barbash explores 1980s New York through the lens of the inhabitants of the famed Dakota apartment building. The central figures in his novel are father and son, Buddy and Anton Winter. Buddy is a talk show host trying to make his way back onto the air after a famous nervous breakdown on television. And Anton is his 23-year-old middle child, recently back from the Peace Corps, working to support Buddy's comeback. We began the discussion with Barbash sharing why 1980 New York was the subject of his second novel. I like writing about the Upper West Side of my childhood and adolescence. I wrote a good deal about it in my story collection, Stay Up With Me, um, and then I returned to it in the novel. And when you grow up in the way that I grew up, in the way that anybody grows up, you think um, it's not unusual. This is the way one grows up. One grows up on the 17th floor of an apartment building, and one lives near Central Park. And as a kid, I rode the subway and buses, was fairly independent at around 9 and 10, and walked around in this urban landscape. And that seemed like that's what the life of a child was. But when I went to college later on, I realized that was not how everyone else grew up. I didn't have a yard the way other people did. I didn't get a driver's license until I was 24. So it was a very distinct way of growing up. And in terms of my fascination with Dakota, I grew up five blocks away. I was on, grew up on 77th Street. The Dakota was on 72nd. And it was one of these great castles. There's a whole bunch of them that, that you've seen in movies that line Central Park West. There's the Dakota, the San Remo, the El Dorado, the Beresford, and these big magical castle-like buildings, um, all built close to the same time with these luxury apartments. And the distinct uh, fascination for a kid with the Dakotas, it looked haunted to me. It was soot-covered and, um, and a little scary-looking. In fact, when I've gotten to know people that live there, they said <laughs> they loved living there, but it felt a little haunted to them as well. So that was, that was to me, fascinating. And then that time, um, in, it, now when I looked back and started to, to do some research about 1980, it seemed like such a pivotal year. You had the hostage crisis, the Iranian hostage crisis, um, went all the way through that year. Um, we had a huge presidential election um, with, uh, with Ronald Reagan being elected and, and Jimmy Carter only serving one term. Um, and we had uh, the fallout with the Soviet Union because of the invasion of Afghanistan. We boycotted the Olympics. And everything seemed very charged, both in the city and throughout the country. So, it, it, so to have that kind of backdrop to whatever story I was going to discover, that it, it seemed like rich material. So although this is about two main characters in general, Anton and Buddy, Anton is the son, Buddy is the father, are there elements of you in there? And, and what were you doing in 1980? Or what were you thinking about? Anton's a few years older than me, but uh, shares a lot of my views of the city. And I, I guess I was aware, even back then, of it slightly changing. I was aware of the gentrification 
that Columbus Avenue, which had, when we was a pretty scary street when we first moved there, um, suddenly around that time, maybe a year before, started to fill up with cafes and interesting stores and a lot of life. So, um, so there's a lot of that in me. My father did not work in showbiz. My father was a lawyer, but we were very close. And I'm interested in the way when um, when you get older, uh, your your uh, your parents don't usually come with you with their problems when you're younger. But when they get older, you know, mothers and fathers start leaning on their adult children in a way that it, it can be a little bit unsettling at first. So the roles can change. You know, suddenly the son can be dispensing advice to the father and what that's like. And a lot of what the Dakota Winters is about is that the sort of changing the, the shifts in the relationship between father and son over time. You know, you said that you were really interested in that time, 1980, in the Dakota, and you lived near there. So what made you decide to encapsulate that in this relationship between a father and son? And specifically, this father was a very famous talk show host. He was funny, he had famous guests, and he had a crackdown on TV and sort of saw his career plummet and his son come in and help him. So how how did this become sort of the the characterization of how you wanted to tell your story? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I think I began with another big element of the Dakota, of course, was that John Lennon lived there. And 1980, the significance of 1980, of course, is that it was the last year of John's life and he was assassinated at the end of the year. And I tried to imagine what it would be like to be his neighbor, to not know him. To know him, of course, you knew him as a Beatle, but also as a friend, as someone you saw in the elevator. And the more I learned about the Dakota, the more I learned that it was this place where people were sort of brought down to size. The the unwritten rule was that that you treated everyone like a neighbor, you know, not like a celebrity. And so that that interested me that you know that 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 particular story, and um, so so here's something that I discovered over the course of the writing, you know, and and in some ways you don't know quite what all the threads are going to wind up adding to in the book, but I thought about what a talk show host does. I loved uh, the talk show shows in my family, and I think I appreciate them even more now, like the Dick Cavett show, having just these terrific conversations from writers and thinkers and, and actors and, um, and, and someone at the center of it who really understands you know, how to bring the best out in people. But I thought one of the things that a talk show host does is he makes people that are inaccessible, celebrities, seem human. And part of what the book is about is the sort of, you know, in some ways, the kind of sinister thing that happens when people believe that they have an intimate relationship with a celebrity. So like people watch someone on a talk show who reveals something of themselves, and they almost feel like that person's revealed that to them, and now they're close to them. And the kind of ways in which people get angry at celebrities for things they've done in their personal life, like they have a right to, you know, to be personally affronted by it. And that, of course, is how... Uh, Mark David Chapman felt about uh, Lennon. You know, he felt sort of personally hurt by certain things, and and I think a lot of fans did. They, when the Lennons became reclusive, people felt like they were being rejected, and that kind of strange, sinister aspect, and how difficult it is to be, you know, a sort of supremely public figure with no privacy. So that that's an element. Buddy is a celebrity, and and he's had, you know, he whenever they. As a kid, when Anton and Buddy would go out to dinner, people would audition for him because they'd want to go on the show. But nothing like the kind of life that John had, that sort of fishbowl existence. 
And is there something about talk show hosts that, I mean, you said that you watched them when you were growing up, but that you were particularly interested in? Because it's not, in some ways, it's not unlike being a writer where you're sort of observing human behavior and trying to get into other people's heads. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a, a friend of mine said that maybe one of the things we want to do as writers is write a book about our doppelganger existence with that life that if we in the next life maybe this is what we'll do and in some ways i mean i do things like what you're doing right now i do some q a's with writers and i love preparing for it and talking with different people being on stage and so you know it's something that's always intrigued me you know and part of it too and you talked about buddy having the the breakdown or the, the crack up is that the pressure on you is that you always need to be on. You need to be, in, you need to be so present and have full access to, to your brain and your wit and your comprehension. And what happens if you dropped into a funk for a period? What would that be like? You know, and, and you're supposed to each night be on, again, that kind of pressure. And Buddy succumbs to it. This is two years before the start of the novel. And then has to sort of get up the nerve to get back out there again. So, But that... Um, it just it just interests me uh, tremendously, and I think in some ways, you know, someone was asking me about what as if, if, if there's some aspect of old New York that Buddy would bemoan the loss of, and I think it's just an appreciation for great conversation. I mean, he's the type of person who, even more than the fame, if, if he had a great conversation out at a restaurant, it'd be the same as being on stage in a way. He just loves being with smart people. This, the character does. And he just loves that. And I feel the same way. I mean, I, I think um, my father once told me that the he said that you should work hard. And the reason why is that you will you will succeed and you'll get to be around the smartest people and have the best conversations <laughs> So that to him, which was such a great way to think about what you do in life. So like you become a great, you know, a better writer, whatever you are, better lawyer, better doctor so that you can be around other smart people and have interesting conversations. With this book, Anton, he's the son, he's 23. He um, goes to the Peace Corps. Um, His dad has had this breakdown. He goes to the Peace Corps. He gets malaria and he has to come home. And he's sort of adrift a little bit. I mean, first he's sick and he's living with his parents in the Dakota. And he gets sort of sucked into the the sort of reincarnation of Buddy and getting him back on the air. And he is inseparable from his father and and working for him. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this relationship and what it meant to you to put on the page. Yeah. What what happens is that, that Anton grows up on the show, essentially. And part of it is that when you have a father who's working the kind of hours Buddy's working and is absorbed in his work the way he is, Anton recognizes that this is his chance to actually be with his father. And he's the one kid, his younger brother Kip is too young, and his older sister Rachel doesn't want to do it. And so he has the chance to, and he starts being given adult responsibilities, even when he's like in 10th grade. He's, he's starting to do the pre-interview interviews, basically doing a lot of the work that a producer does, and all the way th- he does it all the way through college. And at some point, he gets to know the rhythms of his father's speech, the way his father tells jokes, the way the father, his father's brain works, and he can start writing material for his father. And in a way, Buddy begins to lean on Anton, almost as if this is, a, you know, it's like an annex for his thoughts. It's a, he, you know, it's a, it's a repository for stories and jokes and aspects of his personality. And that is something that works for Buddy, and it's very 
useful for Buddy in terms of of getting back in the game. But Anton begins to, at some point, feel claustrophobic, as as anyone would, and realize um, that what he wants to do is get his father back on his feet. The way I think there's a line in it that he wants to basically get his father to kindergarten or first grade and drop him off at the school, you know, and then and then take off and do his own thing. But Buddy has Buddy so feels as though he's so reliant on Anton, he doesn't want to give that up. So there's a kind of push and pull in that relationship there and a strain on it. You know, this idea of serving your father at so young and maybe putting aside your own dreams, although I think he was still trying to formulate his and figure out for Anton, he was trying to figure out what he really wanted to do in the world. But I am interested in in a little bit more of your thoughts about this idea of, of serving your father. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, he gets his friend Alex, you know, basically convinces him at, at some point that if he doesn't do it, that his father is going to be known forever as the person who walked off his talk show. That moment will be that'll be that'll be his moment. People will never be able to forget it. So he convinces Anton to do it. And the other thing that pushes Anton, without giving up too much, because it's still fairly early in the book, is that he's used to watching people almost take advantage. Of, uh, I mean, take for granted that every time he goes out, people give his father tons of respect, uh, listen very closely to what his father is saying. You know, there's kind of reverence. Any, in any room, the center of attention is going to be wherever Buddy Winter is standing. And then he goes to this series of, of lunches with these young executives and their humiliations for Buddy because his stock has fallen and they're not treating him with the respect that Anton believes they should. And that's when he really decides that he can't let this happen, that he's got to stand up for his father. He really, he's sort of, he's, he's furious on his father's behalf. And I think that's re- that really tightens the bond at that point. Tell me about just researching 1980. You have the Olympics, you have, you know, the politics going on. What was that experience like? It was so fun. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I was trying to say is, is I felt very much like, I, and especially in, with with stuff that's going on now, that I could live in that year, and so I read. I had you know subscription to Times, so I had the Times archive. So in the same way that I would read the paper every day, I was reading the, the New York Times every day, and I certainly read it for the days when I was writing scenes. I knew what what the stories were in the Times. I knew a lot of the trends. I knew by reading the New Yorker and looking at the goings on around town. I knew what bands were playing, at which clubs. I knew which movies were opening, and so I lived in that year. I saw a lot of the movies from that year. I listened to all the music again of that year. I mean, I, I was reminded of things that I liked from that year. But there was so much stuff that was happening there. And the music's great. I mean, you have, like, you know, it, it's a period of, like, the talking heads and the clash and the pretenders and um, the jam. All these bands that I ended up loving, sort of disco's dying out. You know, punk is 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 in full bloom and new wave starts you know coming in and it's interesting that you know the movies that are out apocalypse now came out that year so being sort of living in there and then the politics were so interesting you know and the people forget they think of it as as the Carter um Reagan election but if you look at the end of 1979 you know in the in the beginning of 1980 Everybody thought Kennedy was going to win. I mean, everybody wanted him to run forever, and, and Teddy Kennedy was going to be the next president. And how that um, that that presidential campaign flamed out, I thought was fascinating, and that's an element in the book, too. 
What about this idea of sickness? You know, you have the mental sickness and Anton had malaria. So there's a weakness in the system of the winters. Yeah. Well, I think they're both convalescing at the same time, you know, and, and Buddy, you know, they, they both went through something. And it was helpful for me. I mean, um, I think the fact, it makes made sense for me that Anton would get away. And, and I'd always, in many ways, wish I'd gone to the Peace Corps. And I um, I envy and so revere the stories my friends have who, who did that back then. But I also think it, it helped for me to, since I was writing through Anton's perspectives, to sort of see the city anew, to have him leave and have that kind of fresh perspective on the city that helped. But I also think in the beginning of the book, Anton's recovering and Buddy's recovering. And so the two of them just go on these trips. They go off and they explore the city as though they're travelers. They go to movies and museums and they walk everywhere and they formulate their plan. And that idea of, of really sort of forging that bond, you know, they had it, they lost it. And now, you know, they're aligned again. And that's, that's a big part of the building blocks of the book. And, and also, you know, it's, it's for them, it's, there's an awareness that hopefully this isn't going to be how they're going to be living forever, but they're going to take advantage of it then. And also because Anton grew up with everybody wanting a piece of his father, and he suddenly has all his father's attention for this period. And it's very exciting for him. You know, it, it's, um, he doesn't yet at that point feel drained because his father doesn't need him as much as he just, you know, enjoys his companionship. Was there anything that you learned writing this in general about writing or yourself or this time period that either changed, like you had an opinion going in and then you didn't, or anything about writing? Yeah. Well, um, I had never written historical fiction. And so I learned a ton about basically doing the job of research, of, of researching a book. And so the first thing that happens is there's all these little things that you find interesting. And then it's almost like cluttering up a house because you keep trying to find nice little homes or nesting spaces for this great research you, you, you've discovered. And so you have this big cluttered mess. And then you've got to sort of strip it away and, and be in service to the story and then, and then find natural places for it. But also just the, the main reason to do the research is to give you the confidence to convince yourself that you are that person and, and, and you have that perspective and, and for the purpose of while you're writing the book that you're actually living in that time period and you bring it alive, but you can't, you know, you, you can't clutter it up. And so that discovery of how to do that, you know, and, and, and how to make it come alive, but not, not um, problematically was, it was a blast. You know, it was, it, it, at first I was, I was sort of feeling like I couldn't do it. And then I found you know, that I could, you know, that, that the story started coming through and, and, and I could remove a lot of that, not lose that sense that we were living in that year. And um, so I, I learned a, a ton about that. And, um, and I think I learned a lot about the New York that I grew up in. I had memories, but it reinforced things. I was wondering if it was quite as scary as I remember. And it was a pretty rough and tumble place. And I did used to get mugged a lot. And my stepmother was held up once at knife point. My grandmother was thrown to the ground. They broke her arm. And yet we all loved the city back then. It was, it was more sort of diverse and democratic. And there was a middle class. Um, the Upper West Side had a lot of, a lot of the mental institutions had, had, had let out patients that were living on the Upper West Side. So we had a, a mixture of, of, and we had drug dealers and prostitutes, but we had amazing bookstores and revival movie theaters and a lot of artists and actors and musicians. 
lived there, and it was just like the whole world seemed to be living on the Upper West Side, you know, a, a diversity of architecture. And I think that, I think New York is thriving, but it's not as interesting now as it was when I was growing up. And being reminded of that by, you know, but through the research of just, you know, how electric that place was and, and how problematic it was. But, um, but it, 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 you know, it was, it was great for me. I mean, I really sort of had a lot of memories flooding back to me of, of, of that time as I was doing the research. So it was, it was, it was great. And, and, um, you know, it, it, it put me in touch with things and my parents are both gone. So, um, my mother died in college and my father died, um, uh, about 16, 17 years, years ago. And I really felt like I was spending time with them while I was writing this book. So that was, that was great. That was a nice byproduct of this. I was wondering about the mixture of truth versus fiction. So obviously the winters aren't, didn't exist. They're your fictional characters, but they are, you know, the, he does go sailing with John Lennon. He has conversations with John about his relationship with the other Beatles. Yoko's present. Um, how did you blend the truth with fiction? I had, you know, I, uh, I had uh, one book was um, the memoir of John's personal assistant of his last, the story of his last year. And I had the book that was also written by their tarot card reader. And then I had a lot of biographies that um, that I read. And I guess the, the difference is, is that I had to figure out a way to get Anton um, on that boat and figure out what way would Anton have a very specific connection to John. And so part of that was understanding what John wanted in his last year, which is, you know, part of it that hasn't been written about, I think, is his last year was so much about the desire to go to sea, go out to sea, that he, his father had left him when John was two. He was a merchant seaman and was away for the next, pretty much until John was six. And um, he, John always longed to go to sea. And in his last year, he was reading about great sea voyages. He read the Contiki and other books by Thor Heyerdahl and uh, books by Sir Francis Chichester, who circumnavigated the globe by himself. And, um, and he wanted to take a great trip. And um, so what I had to do, or what I did, is, is Anton's connection to John is through sailing. Anton sailed his whole life and, um, you know, on, in summers and on weekends. And he um, helps John choose a sailboat and, and coaches him, helps teach him sailing out on Cold Spring Harbor. John actually bought a, a boat that spring. And then, of course, when John goes out to sea, he invites Anton along. So it made, it, that made sense. So I tried to the, – the, the thing that's from my imagination is, is Anton's uh, place on the boat. Of course, Anton gets sick along with everybody else. The only one who didn't get seasick was John because of his macrobiotic diet. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of you, – you research what happened and you figure out how – I guess, what if? You know, it's, it's just kind of what if – you were there for the trip. You know, what if you had the chance to go out to sea with John Lennon? And actually, something when I first read that that story about it, I thought, God, I would have been loved. I would have loved to have been on that boat with him. What would that have been like? What an adventure! Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you? Yeah, I was going to read from. Uh, I may not even be the first person on your show who's done this, but it's a, a section from uh, Chekhov's Anton Chekhov's. Lady with the pet dog, and also it's good because Anton was named for Anton Chekhov, so um, which is not something that's in the book, but but um, the mother was in a Chekhov play um, that Buddy saw, and so they named him 
after Anton Chekhov. But this is from Lady with a Pet Dog, and it's a moment where the character Gurov is walking with his daughter, and um, and it's 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 about the complexity of the public and the private, which kind of fits well with my book, that idea of the, the two sides of yourself. And he has met Anna, um, this young woman, on this trip, and it's complicated his life. And so... Um, his daughter says to him, and why are there no thunderstorms in the winter, father? He explained that too. He talked thinking all the while that he was going to see her, and no living soul knew of it, and probably never would know. He had two lives, one open, seen, and known by all who cared to know, full of relative truth and of relative falsehood, exactly like the lives of his friends and acquaintances, and another life running its course in secret. And through some strange, perhaps accidental conjunction of circumstances, everything that was essential, of interest and of value to him, everything in which he was sincere and did not deceive himself, everything that made the kernel of his life was hidden from other people. And all that was false in him, the sheath in which he hid himself to conceal the truth, such, for instance, as his work in the bank, his discussions at the club, his, quote, lower race, his presence with his wife at anniversary festivities, all that was open. And he judged of others by himself, not believing in what he saw, and always believing that every man had his real, most interesting life under the cover of secrecy and under the cover of night. All personal life rested on secrecy, and possibly it was partly on that account that civilized man was so nervously anxious that personal privacy should be respected. And do you want to say any more about why you chose that? I just, I love the construction of the paragraph. It reminds me, there's, there's, um, there's an amazing paragraph in Tender is the Night, and the first, it might not even be in the same sentence, the first one is Nicole Diver is, is going to shop, and the first one is all these things that she buys, and the second half is all the labor, <laughs> mostly third world labor, that it took to produce all the things that she's, buy, that she's bought, that she's oblivious of. But it's, and also, you know, in, 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 um, in this book that I've just written, which is so much about, about um, a public life and private life, you know, and, and, um, and the distinctions between, or the lack of distinctions between the two of them. I, I, I found, I, you know, and, and I also just, I go back to this story over and over again. Chekhov's a big influence on me um, because he's such, a, he's such a great, quiet, and powerful psychological writer. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, yeah. I was going to read, this is from my collection, Stay Up With Me. And I wrote this story called Birthday Girl. And in it, it's um, sort of, I guess, there's there's a little bit that you shouldn't know in the story, so it's sort of, spoiler alert, it's a story about um, a young woman, and um, she's gone out for the night um, to dinner, and she's had a few drinks afterwards, and she hits uh, with her car a young girl. It's really not her fault the girl is streaking in front of the car, and um, and then she spends a night at the hospital um, waiting to see what what's happening with the girl, and um, and she's waiting with the girl's parents, and and things are ultimately not going to go well, um, and um, and it's, it and I had written a story I guess, and it was over, and I had written the ending in the hospital room, and then I I it it wasn't successful yet because I guess my first impulse was 
to tell how the moment lived with her, you know, to run the story on for several more scenes. But the absence of, of something like that, I, I, it needed a, a, a longer conclusion, and yet I needed to end the story where I ended it. So I took a page from uh, something that Alice Monroe does, and I wrote this flash forward that's, that's embedded in there, and it seemed to save the story. So, um, so it's written in second person, and the, um, um, the, the, the protagonist of the story comes back, has is, is actually been walking with the young girl's dog, and she comes back to the nurse's station. And she says, you jog and then run the mile back into the hospital and over to the nurse's station. Lemon tugs at his leash. You ask, is there any news about Eden? You hear the pleasing sound of a child laughing and then realize it's the television. Oh, dear, says the nurse, who began her shift when you left on your walk. Her accent is from the island, someplace like Barbados, she says compassionately. Nobody went to find you because she believes you are the older sister. Beautiful girl, the nurse says and clucks her tongue. Was it a hit and run? Yes, you say. Well, I pray to God they get him. In the waiting room, Eden's parents are conferring with one of the doctors. Your brain shuts off, and there's a tingling in your arms and hands. And this is the, the section that I inserted. Years from now, on vacation with your husband and six-year-old son in Hawaii, you will make friends with a psychologist and find yourself more comfortable with her than you are with anyone in your everyday life. The psychologist will be traveling from Canada with her own family and staying in a bungalow a few hundred yards down the beach. Things will have turned out well for you on many fronts. You'll be having drinks with her at dinner one sultry night, and you'll slip and say that there are things no one will ever know about you. The psychologist on her third Mai Tai will joke and say, You mean the sweet little kid you killed once? It will be a terrible coincidence, a macabre line put out for no reason other than that she hadn't felt like doing her job on vacation. She will read your face and then switch the subject. She will slip you her card the next day and say she works by phone if need be. You will want to tell your husband that night, but then you'll wonder how he would feel about the fact that you kept it from him this long. You will ask him to drive for the rest of the vacation. You will fall asleep in your son's bed twice that week with the boy in your arms. You will try to forgive yourself. Home from Hawaii, you will pull an old man back from the curb, though in truth no car was speeding toward him, only a slow-moving cab a few hundred yards away. Bless your soul, he will say. And then the, the, it goes back into the hospital room, so I won't, I won't read the, the, the end of the story. But it made the story didn't work before it, and it worked, I thought, after that, because I wanted a way of conveying how something could both, you know, would always be with you and, and would never leave you and would haunt you. But you, you, it, it wasn't like her life would end. In some ways, the awfulness was how good her life was in some ways and, and, that, and the mixture of it. You know, how, how would it live with her? And I had to figure that out. And using the flash forward um, worked for me. And then, then I go back in the hospital room into that moment. But that idea, you know, of, of, of being able to jump in time that way, um, and, uh, and it really was something... And I have to say that story lay unfinished for probably two years. <laughs> and then at some point, I was working on the novel, actually, when I had that story. And I was like, ah, I can do this. I, just, I don't know where it came from. And then I just wrote it, and then the story was done. And it worked. And it didn't work before that. Where do you write? Uh, I write at home a lot. I have a little uh, sort of shed outside our house. Um, but I wrote a lot of this. I, I had a shared space in Sausalito, um, so I am, and now I'm in search of a new, of a new place outside the house. Only, you know, I have lovely places inside the house and I'm comfortable writing here, but it's good to get out of the house some. 
um, and um, so that that home becomes a place where you're sort of you, you come back to and you can relax and you don't have to constantly think about work. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Sports a lot. I mean, I, I play a lot of tennis, um, do a lot of swimming, and um, I, we, I live in Mill Valley, California, and we have gorgeous hikes. I live near a place called Tennessee Valley, which is really sort of the, the, the Marin Headlands, and, and I love to take long hikes there and do it with my family, but also do it um, on my own. And it's amazing. I just did the, the, the clarity of thought that I have when I do that. Um, if, I'm, if I'm stuck in a section of a book and I go take a long walk, I invariably break through either on the walk, I keep a pencil, you know, pen and paper for, for when that happens, or I just come right back and I, I can sit down and, and, and things open up usually after a long walk. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have um, um, I have close friends. I have close writer friends and, and a few close friends who aren't writers, and they're really valuable in different ways. I mean, my friends who, who aren't writers are really smart readers. And my writer friends, um, uh, I, have, I have a couple people that are just incredibly good at helping me out of those spots when I've sort of fallen into a ditch. Mostly, I remember Mary Gateskill, I asked her about that, and she said, mostly in the early stages, I just want love from people. And you do want people, you don't necessarily want people digging in with criticism early on. So you do, but, but, but you, do, um, you do need that feedback, and you can hear it in their voice if it's genuine. But it's, it's, it, at some point, it's, it's really valuable. Um, you know, to, um, to have that fresh perspective on things, especially when you get stuck. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it's inevitable, and you, you, you know, I mean, I, I tell my students this, that you're going to get, um, if you, um, uh, you know, I think the first story that I sent out was rejected at 17 places, and it was taken by the 18th place, and it's just inevitable, and you just have to have the right approach, right? You, there's so many times where I've gotten something you know, good happened to me on the day that, that I had a disappointment. So it's just part of, everybody goes through it, and just to know that that's just part of being a serious writer is, is, is that you're going you're gonna to face it and, um, and, and just to persist. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> I was going to say, I was thinking is, is persistence. You know, and it's basically um, no matter how, much you feel that you're in trouble with a piece of work that you're stopped to just you get up the next day I remember hearing Juno Diaz tell a bunch of young students they asked him if he ever you know what he did when he felt dejected and he said that he quits he quits in the evening and then the next morning he unquits <laughs> he's back at it so that idea of of every day is a new day and you can see things anew and things can come to life that didn't seem like they ever would and so it's just to, to, to persist and keep at it You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Tom Barbash, author of The Dakota Winters. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.